saw a horrific tragedy where the cinematographer got shot and killed on, on set the other day on the, in that Alec Baldwin film. And, and for a lot of people, I think that sort of brings home the, the safety and, and workplace and working conditions aspect that they've been talking about here. It's been reported that some of those workers walked off the set that morning over their pay being held up and then by having safety concerns. There will be the possibility of creating a new political environment that draws in this coalition of low-income voters across race. And I don't think we've seen the power of what that can achieve yet, but we did see in, in 2020 the beginnings of what that might look like. Here in Staten Island, we have four buildings over here. This is going to be a very powerful union once it get established. These workers are uh, resilient, they are brave, they're organizing themselves in Amazon labor. It was actually found by academic research that poverty amongst people on welfare payments decreased from 68% to 7%. Wow. We have majors who don't get to take a class with less than 100 students in it. I want to teach as best as I can, and there's, just, there's only so much that you can do with 400 students in a classroom. We want to explore why winning a progressive governing majority with the Black working class, a key partner of the governing coalition, is so elusive. Halloween lost most of its superstitious and religious overtones. No more animal sacrifices were needed. Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from some of the nearly 150 shows that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. You can check them out at laborradionetwork.org. This week, Labor reporter Dave Jameson discusses Striketober on Rick Smith's show. On Labor Express Radio, Shali Gupta Barnes of the Poor People's Campaign discusses their new study, Waking the Sleeping Giant, Poor and Low-Income Voters in the 2020 Elections. Organizer Chris Smalls talks about unionizing Amazon on the Checkout podcast. And from new network member The SUA Show, Squatters and Unwaged Workers Airwaves, a weekly program from Melbourne, Australia, we hear from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. On Solidarity Works, a conversation with Pitt faculty activists and from Black Work Talk, a preview of Season 2. We wrap up this week's show with a frighteningly brief history of Halloween on the Grit Northwest podcast. And from Labor History Today, Tim Strangleman brings us Voices of Guinness Workers in London. I'm Chris Garlock for the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Remember, you can find all of today's shows, along with nearly 150 more just like them, at laborradionetwork.org. And if you enjoy the Labor Radio Podcast Network Weekly, please be sure to like us and share the show widely. Solidarity works. Here's the show. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, the month of October has been dubbed Striketober. And like I said last week, I'm hoping uh, that this translates into never again November, something else for December, and this kind of energy and militancy 
continues into the coming months because look, we desperately need it. We need the kind of activism we've been seeing. In fact, so many strikes right now, the number that I saw last week, there are more than 100,000 people who are either on strike or have authorized going on strike right now. Uh, but here to share some thoughts on this wave of strikes going on and maybe some some details of the big ones. I've asked Dave Jamison to come talk with us. Dave is, in my view, the best labor reporter in the country. He's a labor reporter over at Huffington Post. Dave, thanks for taking time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the kind words. Let's talk about some of the work that you've been doing around the uh, the John Deere strike, around what's going on with IATSE and this tentative agreement. Let's start with John Deere. 10,000 workers out on strike. Tell me what's going on. So it's it, the deer strike is a really fascinating story for uh, a couple reasons. One being that this isn't just a repudiation of John Deere. It's frankly a repudiation to the United Auto Workers who bargained a, a tentative agreement. They took it to membership. They thought it was a satisfactory deal. The deer workers voted it down overwhelmingly. 90% said, no, go back to the table. And that's how, how we ended up having this very large strike. And having talked to workers, they feel like they've really got the short end of the stick on the last few contracts. A big piece of why this rejected was they have a two-tier system at John Deere. This was created in 1997, where new hires thereafter would be getting lesser pay and benefits. They've closed the gap on the pay. The lower benefits are still... They, the workers want to eliminate that. Deere not wanted not only to keep that system in place, but to essentially expand it, create a third tier for new hires who wouldn't get any uh, defined benefit pension at all. The workers I talked to said, we're tired of this kind of them dividing us. We want equal pay for equal work. We don't want to be you know, siloed into these different classes that, are, that resent each other. And the workers now know if we sell out the workers who come after us, they're not... Why would they look out for us when the time comes and contract talks? And so this is like the two-tier thing. We've been seeing this for years, Rick. I think it's coming to a head now. We see it at Kellogg's too. The fight there is largely about a two-tier system. Kaiser, same thing. Strike authorization in large part because of a two-tier proposal. I think workers are tired of the, the divisions and a lot of them are recognizing that it essentially threatens the union itself over the long term. It's interesting because the members have told both Deere and the UAW, we're tired of the system. We're taking control here and we want to change it. Uh, let's move over to the IATSE tentative agreement because initially I looked at it and I'm going, well, you know, there's some things I'm not thrilled with, but they got something uh, better than what they were offered. We're now hearing some grumblings from the membership that, no, they're not really interested in this at all. Tell me a little bit about it. I have talked to people who, who have pretty serious concerns about it. People wanted strong turnarounds, right? This is an industry term for the amount of time you're guaranteed between your shift ending and when you have to be back the next day. The union in the tentative agreement got guaranteed 10-hour turnarounds. A lot of members already have that. They wanted something stronger on the order of 12 hours. And there's also this issue of uh, residuals from streaming content, right? Streaming is blown up. It's the huge part of where the studios make their money. There's traditionally been uh, lower pay and residuals on that stuff. The proposal does pull the, the wages up, but people are concerned that the residual piece is not being addressed satisfactorily to keep the health and pension funds in good shape. So the residuals are a big piece of this too. And then you had this this uh, horrific tragedy where the cinematographer got shot and killed on, on set the other day on the, in that Alec Baldwin film. And, and for a lot of people, I think that sort of brings home the, the safety and, and workplace and working conditions aspect that they've been talking about here. 
It's been reported that some of those workers walked off the set that morning over their pay being held up and them having safety concerns. So there's a lot of variables and a lot of wild cards here. And it's amazing to see so many people really in tune with with the process. I've talked with a lot of workers who are never this closely attuned to what their union was doing. So I think there's, again, a big kind of democratic moment here of people being really engaged and that over the long term is going to be a good thing we don't know how this is going to go but this is like very far from over dave i appreciate the time as always great stuff keep up the great work there at huffington post and i hope you'll come back and talk to us again real soon always great talking to you rick thanks for having me thanks so much our good friend dave jameson you're listening to the rick smith show we're working people come to talk remembering that united we bargain divided we beg Rick Smith. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lacero. A recent study released by the Poor People's Campaign this month entitled Waking the Sleeping Giant, Poor and Low-Income Voters in the 2020 Elections argues that poor and low-income voters have more potential power than has been reflected by mainstream media coverage of the electorate. So I was really excited when one of the study's authors agreed to take out time to discuss the study with me. Shelley Gupta Barnes is the policy director for the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice. I spoke with her by phone last Thursday. Perhaps you can just start off to talking about what you think the most interesting findings of the study were. So first, I think we have to pay attention to the sheer size of the low-income electorate. This is not a small group of people. What, we're, what we found was in of the number of votes cast, of the 168 million votes cast, close to 60 million were coming from poor and low-income people. That's over a third of the voting electorate. And even right now, we're talking about policies and legislation and bills, and we're still facing, we're still in the throes of this pandemic and the economic impact of it. And still the needs of these millions of voters are not really centered in our conversations. The second major finding I would say is important is that these numbers weren't limited to one particular region or part of the country. In more than 45 states, poor low-income voters accounted for at least uh, 20% of the electorate, one out of every five voters. This is a huge block of voters. And in the battleground states, in fact, they accounted for an even higher percentage, 35 to 45, in, including in states that flipped outcomes between 2016 and 2020. We looked at nine different states where the margins of victory were really slim. And if not only, you know, low-income voters accounted for a huge percentage, it was important for us to to look at who was turning out to vote, who made up that population of voters. And so we looked at the the racial demographics of low-income voters, and we're looking at, it was clear that Black and Hispanic voters were turning out in in high numbers, low-income voters, but also that low-income, white low-income voters were turning out in high numbers. In fact, white low-income voters accounted for a higher percentage of the total vote in all of these battleground states than all the other minority racial groups of low-income voters combined. And so what that was telling us, the Poor People's Campaign, was that in our model, we deliberately try to bring white, Black, Latino, Hispanic, Asian, Native, you know, we try to bring people together across race, across issue, 
around an agenda that matters to poor and low-income people. And I, I think what the study has shown us is the necessity of doing that and the possibility of doing that. Because in some of these states, given these small margins of victory, it must have been that some of these poor and low-income white voters were voting for uh, a progressive agenda, a more progressive agenda. And this cuts directly against some of the narratives that became very popular after 2016 about, you know, poor white voters ushering the Republicans a victory um, and ushering Donald Trump into the White House. And our study suggests something very different than that. And the campaign, the Portables campaign, reached out to nearly 2 million low-income voters, Black and Hispanic, and other uh, minority races, but all low-income voters across 16 states. And we found that all of our outreach was nonpartisan, and, but we did reach out to people asking, are you interested in the issues that this campaign cares about, which are the issues of poor and low-income people? So there's a basis, as we said, to, to pull in, to reach out to people and pull them into a movement that votes. We never said who to vote for. We just said, go vote and, and participate in this election. Vote for whoever speaks to your needs and interests. And what we found was that our outreach was both, both had a positive impact. And I think it just shows the potential of, of organizing voters across race, low-income voters across race. And that that's the way you really ultimately combat racism as well as challenge the economic system that's disenfranchising all of us. That's right. The narrative was false for 2016, but it still took hold. But that narrative should be totally undone, not only by this report, but just by the fact that we are seeing more people engage um, around these issues. And, and that's important for everybody to take note of, for organizers across sectors, for political organizers, for the media, for politicians. And every, again, in every state, in every district, there will be the possibility of creating a new, a dynamic new political environment that, that draws in this coalition of low-income voters across race. And I don't think we've seen the power of what that can achieve yet. But we did see in, in 2020 the beginnings of what that might look like. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. Welcome to The Checkout, Chris Smalls, Amazon Labor Union. So great to have you back again this year. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I, I follow with great interest the work that you're up to and admire it. So just for our listeners who may not be familiar, give us a quick summary how you got started working at Amazon and what led to your dismissal. Absolutely. Yeah, I started working for Amazon back in 2015 here in New Jersey. The Carteret was my first building, EWR9. Came in entry level, worked hard, got promoted up to a supervisor level my first year. Opened up two more buildings after that facility, one in Connecticut, BDL2, and then my last facility was JFK, Staten Island, currently where I'm at right now. So I, I was a supervisor for four and a half years. I oversaw the, the outbound operation. And last year when the, the virus hit, Amazon failed to protect us, provide any PPE, provide any safety measures, guidelines. And as a supervisor, I felt it was my responsibility to protect my fellow co-workers who I 40 to 60 hours a week with, who I consider my extended family. And when I had a meeting with my higher ups, my bosses, they told me not to tell the employees that I'm overseeing that uh, somebody tested positive. 
And that's when I took my stance against the company. I held the walkout on March 30th, 2020. And uh, two hours after that walkout, I was terminated. And from that moment, I pretty much uh, was catapulted into the media spotlight, but uh, I didn't fade to black. What I did was, you know, organize with my organization, TCOEW. A uh, week after I got terminated, Jeff Bezos, along with the general counsel himself, signed off on a smear campaign on me, calling me not smart or articulate. Ironically, to make me the face of the whole unionizing efforts against Amazon. And fast forward to Alabama Bessemer, what happened several months ago. That's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to pick up where they left off and hopefully become successful in Staten Island. So we began a campaign about four months ago. And currently, that's where we're at. We're we're in the middle of a a heated union campaign against Amazon as we speak. And I'm just trying to lead these workers into uh, a victory. Tell us a bit about how the RWDSU Bessemer campaign trying to unionize that facility in Alabama influenced this recent work of yours. Yeah, they they definitely laid down a, bl- a blueprint of how it could get done. I-, I traveled down there. I drove 16 hours down there with some of my colleagues and comrades who are actually current Amazon workers. And we spent some time on the ground and we saw a lot of missed opportunities on their end as, as well as the opportunities on Amazon. Then. And when we came back to Staten Island, we decided to say, you know, we're going to wait for the results. After the results, then we're going to figure out if we're going to go. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, after the results came out, we knew that we wanted to strike while the iron was hot. And that's exactly what we're doing now. We didn't waste, hesitate. We didn't wait, waste any time. We jumped right into our union campaign and we're, we're organizing differently. We're organizing from within with, with the workers that work in these facilities. So tell us, what is the Amazon Labor Union? How did it come about? And what were the goals and vision of this new organization? So Amazon Labor Union is a, a completely worker-led independent union, uh, brand new from scratch, uh, created by current Amazon here in Staten Island. We have four buildings over here. This is going to be, when we're successful, I'm speaking it into existence. This is going to be a very powerful union once it gets established. These workers are uh, resilient. They are brave. They're organizing themselves. And Amazon Labor can't be a better organization when it comes to organizing against Amazon because they know the ins and outs of the company. The lead organizers here, including myself, we've been a part of Amazon for five plus years. Some of them work for Amazon almost seven years or more. So the experiences here, the the influence um, and and the ins and outs of knowing the problems and grievances with with Amazon, it's all a part of Amazon Labor Union. So we're trying to hopefully, once again, spread like wildfire once we're successful here. What are some of the tactics you're using for recruiting folks? Yeah, so some of the tactics that we use to recruit people are, it's just the conversations, the face-to-face conversations. My presence, the reason why I'm out here, I'm out here volunteering my time, which I don't have to do, but I'm doing it because I know that my presence is powerful here, home base where it all started for me. And as far as the workers that are organizing, these face-to-face interactions with their coworkers are is the best way. We do use social media, obviously, but we do several things. We held five, five going on six barbecues. We had our, our press conference. We invite musical guests. We, we feed the workers daily, giving out waters, donuts, coffee, you name it. 
we give it out every single those type of connections really resonate with the workers because Amazon doesn't do any of these things. They Amazon only do it when as a reaction to what we're doing. They took away all their food vendors. So we've been giving out free food. They took away the hazard pay. They got workers that are living in shelters, some of them even homeless. We're raising money for these workers. We're trying to uh, amplify their story. And we also, obviously, we filed several lawsuits since we started. So we have several unfair labor practice lawsuits pending right now with the NLRB. So we're just organizing differently with these tactics. And I think it's very effective going up against uh, Amazon. Small victories matter. Any closing statements or anything else you want to share with our audience? Oh, yeah, just to state we're in the very beginning stages of our fight. We need as much as support on the inside of the warehouses. We do need that on the community level as well. So please support us in any aspect, social media. You want to join us on the ground, please don't hesitate to send us a message. And thank you for having me. Right on. Best of luck with what you're doing out there. You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, and today is Friday the 22nd of October, am I right? I think you might be, and thank you for joining us, Larry and Larissa, wherever you are. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Daniel Levy to the show, who is with the Canberra branch of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Hi, Anne. Lovely to be here uh, with you, and really stoked to be on 3CR because I am from Melbourne originally, uh, and now live in Canberra. Oh, you never forget your roots. (laughs) What got you involved in unemployment issues to start with? Personally, I had a really good start to life. I was given by my hardworking parents a large number of opportunities to advance my education, um, my career, all of those good things. Um, Unfortunately, I had a very severe undiagnosed mental health condition. And the last 10 or 15 years of my life have been spent in constant freefall, what you might call downward social mobility. Mm. So going from what it's like to have a lot to being completely dependent and reliant on support systems. And what became apparent to me is that, you know, you'll hear from me because I had that luck. Uh, My parents um, have been very supportive. The people who are simply struggling to get by and still underwater, they are either too busy, too stressed to be even thinking about advocacy or they've already gone under. Mm. And we see that in the form of things like addiction, highly um, disproportionate representation in the carceral system. You don't really hear from them too much. And what really motivated me to get involved was I have now seen both sides of this track and it's just a gross and completely avoidable injustice of the system we live in. We need to be supporting everyone to live comfortably above the poverty line. And that's a big part of of how I came to this. That's something that we see uh, uh, quite a lot is the system is set up to work well for people when it's working well. And it's not set up 
when the wheels fall off. It's a bit like the, the Mikey transport system. <laughs> uh, if you've got a card and you're in the system, it's great. If you don't have a card and you try and catch a, a train or public transport, there's no support mechanism. That's like a microcosm of how we operate as a society. And uh, when people do fall off the system, they end up with all sorts of uh, social and mental health issues, which then is used against them as victim blaming. They say, oh, look at these people, they're pathetic. But they weren't pathetic. The conservatives in our um, society turn that around and victim blame people who've fallen on hard times. And I remember seeing a lot of that in the union. It was people, they had a little bit of leeway that gave them that ability to do some activism. So it's a really interesting perspective that you have on your own situation. It's a very common thread. What it means is that overall, the movement as a whole suffers for not having as many voices with the truly brutal lived experience as those doing it toughest. Um, we, we really have to do a lot more to reach out to them and boost their voices. And that's really hard given how little resourcing there is. What have you heard on the ground for how people are going during the lockdowns? The sad fact of, um, of, of 2021 is that everyone has pretended that the original conditions that led to the COVID supplement and the implementation of JobKeeper are no more when, if anything, uh, they are worse because of the compounding effect of when they were brutally ripped away in, in March of this year. When the COVID supplement was brought in in 2020, it was actually found by academic research that poverty amongst people on welfare payments decreased from 68% to 7%. Wow. That is an unfathomable decrease in absolute poverty. And when, when we say poverty, what we mean is the Henderson poverty line, which takes into account real fixed costs like rent, like food, like medication. Mm. In 2020, in response to the sudden need to lock down the whole country, I would say the most important anti-poverty um, policy decision was made. It was to double job seeker. It was to double all of the payments on which people without jobs relied on. That doubling lifted the payment, not much, but clearly above the Henderson poverty line. So all these people were living at half the poverty line. We're not even talking some kind of luxury level of payment here. And are back to it now. Yes. In a, in a first world country like Australia, we've got a policy that deliberately puts people at half the poverty line. It's one of the lowest in the OECD, and the OECD itself criticises us for that. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. I'm Chelsea Ingle, proud member of the United Steelworkers, and welcome to Solidarity Works. Last week, more than 3,000 faculty at the University of Pittsburgh voted to become members of the United Steelworkers Union after a robust organizing campaign that began all the way back in 2014. In recent years, organizing academia has increased as fatigue and low pay are pushing workers to the brink. I'm talking with two of these faculty members about the energetic union campaign that ended on a high note and that now moves on to the real work of securing a first fair contract. When Tyler Bickford started working in the English department at the University of Pittsburgh, 
in 2013, he felt pretty lucky to get the gig. After all, academic jobs are few and far between. When organizing meetings first began unofficially in 2014, Tyler was told by fellow organizers that the work ahead would be difficult, but that it could be done if faculty members engaged one-on-one with each other on the issues that affected them. The USW's organizing model, which I bought into from the very beginning and was always communicated really clearly, was that the approach to this was going to be that faculty are going to talk to faculty and we were going to work hard and do a lot of the heavy lifting, but that it would really only happen if we were the ones who were reaching out to our colleagues and talking to new people and especially going into you know new areas of the university. This campaign really, I, I would say, in its earlier, earliest phases was very focused on the English department. We had to you know organize and get votes in the the School of Dental Medicine and Health and Rehab Sciences in law and engineering and education at the regional campuses. The the way we were able to do that was because people had colleagues, coworkers, people that they could recognize as peers, making contacts, reaching out to them and making them really feel like this was not scary, like the people who were involved were people like them who they could trust, and that there was really a vision. 3,300 faculty have a lot of different jobs. And some of that is artificial, and it's a kind of a form of sowing division by the administration. We have people who have part-time contracts and do exactly the same work as people on full-time contracts. We have people with some decent job protections, like with the tenure system, and then a large majority of people who don't have that. And so those are these artificial distinctions that university managers have used to make it hard for us to feel like we're in solidarity with each other. And the thing that's just, for me, that is really the most powerful about this is that we managed to overcome those silos, that we managed to really build trust and understanding, a real sense of common interests. We actually have more in common with each other than we have with the administrators, and that coming together and forming this union is a way to build that power and to really work on those priorities. Melinda Chikachopo first found out about the organizing efforts at Pitt while she was working at the university among several others in southwestern Pennsylvania. Melinda knows that some of the individual concerns in the School of Dental Medicine, for example, might vary slightly from those in the arts and sciences. But she also knows that this issue of transparency, along with pay, is a common thread across all departments. Pay is a a big deal, particularly for non-tenure stream, but for everyone, transparency is huge. So for tenure stream, faculty transparency in terms of tenure decisions is a really big deal. For tenured faculty, transparency, they bring in millions of dollars in grant money, and the university takes all of these indirects, and there's no transparency in terms of how that money is being used. And so having bridge funding available and having clear, transparent ways of allocating that bridge fund to faculty members who need it in order to keep their lab going. Another main concern that faculty at Pitt have is overwork and exhaustion due to their employers not hiring enough staff. So one of the things that's been happening in my department is that enrollment keeps going up and we've had several faculty leave the department or retire from the department and those faculty lines are not getting replaced. And so what's happening is that we don't have enough faculty to teach our students. So I've seen enrollment caps for my classes just go up and up. They're essentially just cramming more students into single classes. We have majors who 
don't get to take a class with less than 100 students in it. I want to teach as best as I can, and there's just there's only so much that you can do with 400 students in a classroom. And so that's really problematic for students because they can't rely on on professors that that they enjoyed and whose teaching style worked for them. They can't forge these close connections and relationships with their instructors. Organizing is a long game, but it's the only game workers can play. It can be a long, slow crawl. And there were definitely times throughout the campaign that I was like, there's no way we're winning this. Absolutely, there were times like that. But you just keep doing the work and you just keep having the conversations. And in the end, it pays off. Until next time, take care and stay safe, siblings. Hi, this is Stephen Pitts, your host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Our second season begins on Wednesday, November 15th. We launched Black Work Talk to participate in the larger conversations about efforts to organize Black workers. Season two will be structured around four miniseries, Black Labor, The Black Left, Black Feminism, and Power Building. And each miniseries will have a co-host to enrich the conversations on each episode. We have to be the advocates for consistent democracy and uh, opponents of the status quo. We need to be, we on the left need to be the ones that are pushing the, the envelope on democracy, whether it's around voting rights, whether it's about the right of workers to join and form unions, whether it's women controlling their own bodies, whether it's religious practices, whatever. We need to be the ones that are pushing the envelope. That was Bill Fletcher. Bill will co-host the episodes on Black labor. Bill has been an organizer, an educator, and a theoretician for social justice for decades. We will talk with several guests focusing on the challenges of building powerful worker organizations at scale while simultaneously radicalizing members. The miniseries On the Black Left will be co-hosted by Toussaint Lossier, Toussaint is an assistant professor in the Department of African American Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. His research focuses on grassroots responses to the post-war emergence of mass incarceration in Chicago. Toussaint and I will talk with a series of guests about the state of the Black left, exploring why the Black left has less power relative to Black liberals and centrists. For me, the long story is that I, I come out of a Black feminist tradition. I went to Spelman College. I had the privilege of learning about Black feminism in undergrad. And then I got active in the labor movement at Ohio State University when there was a huge strike on campus in 2000. And for me, this was a way to take that those feminist um, principles and put them into action. And quite frankly, that's the thing that has kept me connected to the labor movement that was Cherie Davis. Cherie is Associate Director of the Center for Innovation and Worker Organization at Rutgers University. As you can tell, she holds tightly the interconnection of theory and practice, and her work in the labor movement is driven by her experiences as a Black woman and her understanding of Black feminism. Cherie will co-host the miniseries on Black feminism, and we will explore the relationship between Black feminism, the labor movement, 
and power building. But if I was going to say on some important things to think about is I do think this question about meeting people where they are listening and really understanding that the work is about giving people an opportunity to, to both be witness to and in community witness to their own power and ability to affect change. That voice was Lauren Jacobs, Executive Director of Power Switch Action, formerly known as the Partnership of Working Families. And she was a guest on episode 15. Lauren will co-host the miniseries on power building, drawing upon her years of experience as a union organizer and years on staff of what is now Power Switch Action, a network of organizations focused on building power at the local and regional level. We want to explore why winning a progressive governing majority with the Black working class a key partner of the governing coalition is so elusive. Black labor, the Black left, Black feminism, power building. These are the four topics we will explore. Season two launches on Wednesday, November 17th. I am still looking forward to working with Bill, Toussaint, Cherie, and Lauren to bring you an exciting set of guests. Stay safe and be well. Imagine a workplace where workers enjoy a well-paid job for life, one where they could start their day with a pint of stout and a smoke and enjoy free meals and silver service canteens and restaurants. During their breaks, they could explore acres of parkland planted with hundreds of trees and thousands of shrubs. Imagine after work a place where employees could play more than 30 sports or join one of the theater groups or dozens of other clubs. Imagine a place where at the end of a working life, you could enjoy a company pension from a plan to which you had never contributed a penny. Imagine working in buildings designed by an internationally renowned architect whose brief was to create a building that would last a century or two. This is no fantasy or utopian vision of work but a description of the working conditions enjoyed by workers at the Guinness Brewery established at Park Royal in West London in the mid-1930s. In 2005, the brewery closed after seven decades of production. Tim Strangleman spent the last six months of the brewery's life working with a photographer to record in words and pictures the site before it closed. Subsequent research revealed an incredibly rich story of corporate cultural change and the transformation of work and the workplace. Strangleman, professor of sociology in the School of Social Policy, Sociology, and Social Research at the University of Kent, Canterbury, drew on material from his book Voices of Guinness, an Oral History of the Park Royal Brewery, for the October 5th edition of Our Daily Work, Our Daily Lives, the lecture series sponsored by the Michigan Traditional Arts Program and the Education Program at Michigan State University. In his Zoom talk excerpted on today's show, Strangleman reflected on what that story tells us about work meaning, identity, and organizational life in the second decade of the 21st century. Really, what I want to do is give you a kind of bit of a background 
to the project um, and the book and just think about what happens when uh, we do listen to the voices of Guinness. This project really is, is, is kind of an example of how you can use one site to tell a wider story about work, what people think of it, how it's organized and how it changes over time from paternalism through to neoliberalism. So, and I also talk about, I don't know if you've got concept in um, the US of ley lines, it's kind of almost semi-mystical thing where um, certain things are on energy lines. Um, and it, I've not gone all kind of crazy here, but basically what astounds me is just how this one brewing site is the epicenter of so many things. If you wanted to take particular moments in the last 80 years about work and organizations, Guinness is almost the ideal example of it. So what I'm trying to do is tell the story of work in the 20th and 21st century. And I also wanted to do a story of one type from pre-paid grading to post-grade. I'm interested in deindustrialization, but it's kind of only one hand clapping. There's various times it's described as a machine, the garden, a factory. So this is quite common, but there's a annual Christmas party for all the, all the workers there. So a lot of the socials are set on the campus of the brewery. And there's dozens and dozens of pictures and include films of the Christmas. So talking about the same event and the says, the editor says, four o'clock brought the satisfying time, the interval of being cricket, satisfying other work, neither join seat, seat uh, the T10, listen to the band or sort around the various tools without feeling that any, uh, that one may be missing some vital part of the program. But one saw it's possible for a small charge to satisfy a long satisfied, frustrated motion, desire to throw things at the china in the house. So that's, and if you have that in America, but it's match up free. It's a, we were just coming out of a war, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, and obviously there's darts, bowling and many other attractions that comprise the fun of the fair. So again, they're imagining this community as a village. And I think it, 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 the workforce is about 1500 people, which is around the size of a kind of typical village, um, where well, I would know everyone. There were some really good stories to tell about this place, people, uh, in it but I would be here for at least a week if I went into all of them. And this, I think, is a daughter one word, but I can't help but think, so she says, I kind of work, think of companies now they would benefit by taking the approach Guinness did to their employees and still make good profits as Guinness did. Although there were close to 1,500 people working there when I started, everyone seemed to know everyone else, and that included the directors. I remember going into the lift one day in the malt store, not long after I started, and the chat brought in, who I didn't know, but he asked me my name. Actually, this is okay. And then he went on to explain that he knew my father, who was still working at the brewery at the time. It turned out to be Edward Guinness, who was the one of the directors there, who I subsequently then interviewed in the 90s. Yeah. So really, just to, to wrap up, I think the Guinness site really was a privileged occasion for understanding work and organization in the 20th century. I think it brings up so many questions about how we think about work and embeddedness of work over the years. Um, but also I think it throws light on how organizations looked after their workers and saw a kind of civic responsibility, especially in that long boom period, which is absolutely gone now. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app and even better if you like what you hear, and we hope you do. Please like us in your favorite podcast app. You can pass the show along and you can also leave a review. That really helps to spread the word and helps folks to find the show. 
This episode of Grit Northwest is brought to you by the Northwest Carpenters Union Communications Department. And now, on to the show. I figured I'd take a different turn this episode. I decided to do some research on Halloween. Here, my friends, is what I found. Halloween is a tradition that started around 2,000 years ago with the Celtic people who lived in the area that is now known as Ireland, the United Kingdom, and northern France. These ancient Celts would hold a yearly festival called the Sowin to celebrate the end of summer and the beginning of the cold and dark winter months, a time of year they associated with human death. During this annual autumn festival, the Celts would light bonfires and wear costumes made of animal heads and skins in the hopes of warding off ghosts and spirit who they believe returned to earth to damage their crops, wreak havoc amongst the living, and generally be a pain in the rear. Sometime around 43 AD, the ever-expanding Roman Empire had conquered much of the Celtic territory. During the 400 years, more or less, of their rule, a few festivals of Roman origin were eventually combined with the traditional Sowin celebration. That seemed to go pretty well for everyone involved. It wasn't until 1000 AD that a pope named Gregory III declared November 1st the official day to honor the dead. All Souls Day, as it was known, is now believed to be the church's attempt to replace the Celtic festival with a church-sanctioned holiday. That said, All Souls Day was celebrated pretty much like the ancient holiday was, with big bonfires, parades, and folks dressed up in all sorts of costumes like saints, angels, and oh yeah, devils. All Souls Day was known as All Hallows, The night before was known as All Hallows' Eve, which, as you've probably guessed by now, became Halloween. In the U.S., during the late 1800s, there was a move to make Halloween into a holiday that focused more on community and neighborly get-togethers than on ghosts, pranks, and witchcraft. Parents were encouraged by community leaders to take anything frightening or grotesque out of the Halloween celebrations. Because of these efforts, Halloween lost most of its superstitious and religious overtones. No more animal sacrifices were needed, in other words. At the turn of the 20th century, Halloween parties for both kids and adults became the most common way to celebrate the evening. Carve a few pumpkins, bob for some apples, have some good food. Pretty wholesome stuff, for sure. Which brings us to now, where Halloween is a month-long celebration of pumpkin patches, corn mazes, scream parks, scary movies, costume parties, and more, all culminating in a night of parentally supervised trick-or-treating. It's estimated that Americans spend around $6 billion annually on Halloween, making it the country's second-largest commercial holiday after Christmas. So there it is, my take on All Hallows' Eve. Regardless of how you care to celebrate it or not, I hope you have a great October 31st. That's it for now. Until next time, this is Joe Cadwell reminding you to work safe, work smart, and stay union strong. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, including complete versions of the shows you've heard today. And you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 
Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith, produced by me, and our social media guru, as always, is Harold Phillips with Mel Smith. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast shows.